Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When Diplomacy Fails presents Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails A project five years in the making The Franco-Prussian War the Seven Years War Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon The Crimean War to When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War One, Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War, the July Crisis Anniversary Project, the Swedish Deluge, Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. This is When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the Second Punic War, which originally aired on the 29th of May 2012. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Episode 2, guys. My name is Zach, as always. So as you can see from the fact that we jumped over 2,000 years back from the period we covered in the last episode... When Diplomacy Fails was never exactly confined by what you might call sensible constraints. The Franco-Prussian War of 1870 and the period that went along with it is inherently fascinating, but so is undoubtedly this period too. If you are a Roman history fan of even some degree, you will surely have heard of this one, and this whole episode was nakedly inspired by the History of Rome podcast, which of course, in one of those podcasting cliches, formed a large part of the reason why Zach got into podcasting over five years ago. That being said, I decided to tackle this for my second episode because I found the era so fascinating, and I still do. And since I knew mostly where everything went, I felt at the time that it would be a fairly gentle second episode to research. It should also be added that a lot of people do this era of history better than me, and in many ways this feels kind of unnatural going back into it, because I'm certainly not as much of a fanboy about Roman history as I was five years ago, 
And I really, honestly, would rather have placed these episodes in more chronological order and perhaps even have skipped the second Punic War altogether. But hey, here we are. It's a remaster. I can't pretend I didn't do it. So, rather than covering up history or presenting you with some alternative facts, here we go. But yes, other people do this better than me. Case in point, a certain Jamie Redfern, who covers this war in far more detail than I do. So be sure to look up A History of Hannibal and the Punic Wars, or just search Jamie Redfern in general, if you somehow haven't heard of my fellow prince in podcasting. And we're princes because we're both young, okay? So, despite the apparently nonsensical scheduling, I hope you enjoy this episode as we look at something different here. Perhaps one of the greatest rivalries of the ancient world. I will now take you to the year 241 BC. It is true that the gods do not give the same man everything. You know how to gain a victory, Hannibal, but you do not know how to make use of it. Marharpal, commander of Hannibal's Numidian cavalry, quoted from Livy's History of Rome. In 241 BC, the Roman Empire as we know it today was still just confined to the Italian peninsula. Rome was powerful, undeniably so, Its military system even at this stage was unparalleled in Europe. It had enabled a city-state to exert its authority over the entire peninsula through wars with various Italian tribes and states. But it was still far from the dominant Mediterranean power at this time. Anyone who has played Rome Total War or even appreciates a good dose of geographic history will know that much. Kingdoms of various different sizes existed across the Mediterranean, but above all it was Carthage that loomed large as a financial powerhouse to Rome's south in North Africa, in modern-day Tunisia. Even after its defeat in the First Punic War, Carthage was still perceived as a threat to Rome, perhaps the only threat to its power in the West. Rome was victorious in the First Punic War, as I said, but it had been exhausted, and it wasn't exactly the most convincing victory Rome would have hoped for. The war had dragged on for an incredibly draining 23 years, suggesting that both sides may have taken something from the playbook of the stubborn AI from Rome Total War as well. Rome's victory in that war meant that it could now claim Sicily as its own, and it imposed a huge war debt on Carthage at the same time. Despite this debt though, Carthage still flourished as a centre of trade and commerce in the Mediterranean, No loss in any war could erase the fact that Carthage was ideally positioned in the middle of trade for the vast majority of European cities, and because of this, its debt to Rome did little to restrict its growth. So Rome watched Carthage after the war with a mixture of jealousy and unease. Rome would have loved to wipe out Carthage and claim its trade for its own, but Carthage had its own plans. If it could not be great militarily, then it would increase its commercial and financial prospects and Carthage aimed to do this by moving into what was then known as the Iberian Peninsula, or simply Iberia, but what we know as Spain and Portugal. Iberia was rich in silver mines, and contained a highly decentralised local populace. It was never united. Despite what Rome Total War may try to tell you, there was never any Iberia faction or any other kind of Iberian power with which to challenge the other powers of the time. Yes, there is a common Rome Total War theme going here. Let's just roll with it. 
Tribal warfare ruled the day in Iberia, and Carthage exploited the situation efficiently and productively. In 237 BC, they sent a snarling, burly Carthaginian general named Hamilcar Barca to harvest Spain's resources in silver, above all. Hamilcar was meant to simply acquire more money for Carthage, but he himself wanted revenge. He viewed the move to Iberia as a chance to poke a stick at his sworn enemy, Rome. Legend tells us that he made his son swear an oath to him. I swear so soon as age will permit, I will use fire and steel to arrest the destiny of Rome. That son's name, wouldn't you have known it, was Hannibal. Hannibal journeyed across Iberia as he campaigned with his father. Hamilcar's army officially answered to Carthage, but in reality it was devoted to Hamilcar first, Carthage second. In effect, it was his own private army then, and Hamilcar became wealthy from the campaigning in Spain. In 229 BC, though, he drowned while crossing a river. One year later, New Carthage was founded on the east coast of Spain. Hasdrubal, Hannibal's brother-in-law, was elected as his successor, and for the next eight years pursued a policy of consolidation. He signed a treaty with Rome, promising to not expand Carthaginian influence north of the river Ebro, while also negotiating with local Spanish tribes to ensure Carthaginian dominance. However, he can't have been that good at his job, since he was assassinated in 221 BC. The army then elected Hannibal as their leader in Iberia, and he was only 26 years old. Hannibal continued on as if nothing had changed, at least initially. When diplomatic representatives from Rome inquired on his intentions as to Spain and what he was really doing there after all this time, Hannibal calmed their angst by claiming that all he was doing was simply gathering the funds necessary to pay his debt to Rome. He was lying, of course. Carthage had been able to pay its debt to Rome a hundred times over by 221 BC, and Carthage had even offered to pay it all at once, but Rome had insisted that Carthage continue to pay it off in the negotiated instalments, perhaps as a yearly reminder of Carthage's previous defeat at Roman hands. What Hannibal was really doing was building up his forces and preparing for war. Back in Rome, senators viewed Carthage as a nuisance and arrogantly assured themselves that war would be both lucrative for Rome and necessary for future plans of Roman expansion. They had no idea that in seven years, the comparatively young Roman Empire would be closer to facing its own extinction than it ever had before. It was this arrogance and flagrant disregard, disrespect for Carthage, and the burning desire to appease his father's wishes that drove Hannibal to make war and, in the process, move his name towards immortality. Before we get into the war, I want to explain a few things that probably don't really need explaining, but hey, I said this the first time I recorded this, so I'm going to explain them all over again. So you may be wondering, if indeed you are, why exactly do we call it a Punic War, why not Carthaginian, or even if you like, Hannibalic? Well, some people do call it those things, but those good old snobby scholars would rather you called it the Punic War, since that was what the Romans called it. Carthage, meaning new city, was actually a Phoenician colony, and Punic was the Latin word for Phoenician. Phoenicia was an ancient empire which we know very little about. Still, even five years on, not much has changed, except that they were based in modern-day Lebanon, and the people who founded Carthage were Canaanite-speaking Phoenician colonists from the city of Tyre. So they sailed up there and founded a city in such a good place that the colony outlasted its Phoenician ancestors. 
Carthage grew in power and status as it became wealthy off Mediterranean trade, until it became the case of this sea isn't big enough for the two of us with its rival Rome. Then we had the First Punic War in 263 BC, which as we know lasted for 23 years, but was only really fought in Sicily. When Carthage lost the war, mostly due to its lack of able-bodied men or a standing army, shortcomings which meant that Carthage had to employ an army of mercenaries to fight its battles, with the exception of those who commanded the armies themselves, Rome was able to claim victory. Carthage wasn't really a martial state like the Roman or even Greek states were. They were a city of traders, merchants and salesmen who just so happened to explode in power because of their command of the sea through their navy and command of trade due to their position. Then you had a mercenary rebellion after Carthage wouldn't pay up. Then you had Hamilcar going to Iberia in order to drag Carthage out of the doldrums and back to its position of economic dominance. He succeeded as we saw. Then he died, then his son-in-law died, and then his son Hannibal was elected leader of the army by his troops. And here we are. So back to the war then. The war which would make Rome the power we know today, which would cement Hannibal's legend, was sparked by a seemingly insignificant city. Saguntum was a Hellenized city-state within the Carthaginian sphere of influence in Iberia, but it happened to be allied towards Rome. Rome had diplomatic and strategic interests in Saguntum. Its position meant that trade with Rome was lucrative, and the population of Saguntum was protected by Rome under the treaty signed by Hasdrubal in the years before. But Hannibal, of course, didn't want peace to continue, as he was as prepared as he would ever be for war with Rome. The war elephants had been delivered and his mercenaries and other soldiers were paid up and itching for some action. Hannibal marched out of New Carthage towards Saguntum in early 219 BC. He would spend the next eight months besieging the city, capturing it later that year. When Rome learned of Hannibal's moves, it sent a diplomatic mission to the Carthaginian Senate. Rome demanded Hannibal back away from Saguntum, respect the treaty his brother-in-law had signed, and promptly supplicate themselves before the mercy of Rome. The Carthaginian Senate refused this generous offer, but even if they had wanted to accept, they had no real power over Hannibal. Much like Hamilcar had done, Hannibal had formed his own army and made his own plans. Just like his father, Hannibal's army's loyalty lay with him, not Carthage, though he marched in Carthage's name. Hearing this refusal, the Roman dignitaries dramatically declared war. Only two decades after one of the costliest wars in antiquity, the Romans and Carthaginians were at it again, with neither side aware that, 2,200 years later, the world would still marvel at its events. Before we get into Hannibal's legend, I just want to clear up a few things. First, despite what you and I may have believed, the Second Punic War occurs all over the Mediterranean. Second, because of this, covering all the events in every theatre will be difficult and time-consuming, and we don't have all that much time. Third, and in light of this, I'm only going to cover Hannibal's moves over Italy proper in any real detail, since that was the main campaign of the war, and since Hannibal's legend demands I give him my full attention. It should be added once more that it's quite obvious that other podcasts cover this period of history in more detail than I would, and this episode is in a sense a fun exercise for me. With that being said then, Hannibal was said by Polybius, one of the primary sources at this time, 
to have fielded an army of 90,000 infantry, 12,000 cavalry and an unknown number of war elephants. Hannibal's aims have been scrutinised by various scholars throughout history, with some believing that he never intended to go to Italy at all. In light of how concentrated his forces were in the northeast of Spain, though, and how much reinforcements he had sent to other Carthaginian possessions, 16,000 in Spain and 18,000 to Carthage, I would bet my money on Hannibal knowing exactly what he was doing, and that he was planning on his audacity and surprise paying dividends. As we shall see, he was, to a large extent, correct. In 218 BC, Rome probably expected the war to be fought in Spain and Sicily, the latter because that had been the guts of the First Punic War, but they had also prepared a force to land in Africa just in case. Rome had reasons to be confident. Its navy had just defeated its Carthaginian counterparts at the Battle of the Ebro River, which meant that Carthage would find it very difficult to resupply Hannibal by sea. In Iberia itself, Rome was actually victorious against outnumbered and poorly-led Carthaginian armies in the battles of Sissa and Dertosa. The battles at sea continued to go sour for Carthage when it lost the Battle of... Okay, I'm going to do my best here. Lilybaum off the coast of Sicily, don't hate me, thus ensuring Carthage could not blockade or land troops on the island. In 218 BC, then, Rome was confident, bordering on arrogant, that it could defeat Carthage decisively in this war. But Rome hadn't met Hannibal, and in fact the main thrust of the Carthaginian war effort hadn't even arrived yet. Hannibal was moving at breakneck speed to reverse this trend, though, across what is now southern France. But Rome's consuls for that year were not in the area. Tiberius Sempronius Longus was readying an invasion fleet for Carthage in Sicily, while the other consul, Publius Cornelius Scipio the Elder, was readying an army to move to protect their ally. Massilia, modern-day Marseille. Hannibal's exact route that he took to get to Italy is hotly debated even today, but in my view such arguments have little purpose for a few reasons, including the fact that the geography of Europe that Hannibal encountered has in fact changed from causes such as erosion, rising sea levels, colder weather and the total relocation of cities, so close examination would be mostly fruitless. Polybius, our main source for the time, is himself writing 50 years after the Second Punic War, so he probably only heard of the actual route from a few of his mates anyway. Also, I would argue that we shouldn't be focusing on where he went, we should be instead remembering that he went there at all. There's a reason nobody marched across the Alps to get to Rome. It was an absolute nightmare. If the climate didn't get you, the logistical problems or unreasonably hostile tribes would. But Hannibal advanced across the Pyrenees until reaching the river Rhone, where a large Gallic army waited for him on the other side. They weren't there to just say hello, but Hannibal defeated them by sending a small force upstream to cross and surprise the tribe, routing them in the process. This tribe was called the Allobroges. We will hear more about them a bit later on, which is great because I'm so good at pronouncing their name. By this stage, Scipio the Elder was on his way by sea to meet Hannibal, so upon defeating the those guys that were in the Alps, Hannibal marched double time towards the direction of Italy. Scipio's aim had been to defend Rome's ally, Massilia, but if he could defeat Hannibal, he wasn't going to throw the opportunity away. Unfortunately for Scipio's ambitions, though, Hannibal was moving too fast for Scipio to catch him, so upon landing near Massilia... Scipio sent his army to Spain, while he returned to Italy. 
While Hannibal moved, he recruited some less hostile and no doubt easier to pronounce tribes from Gaul into his army. The Gallic tribes spoke roughly the same languages as the Spanish tribes in his army, so it was relatively straightforward as a process to recruit them. The Gallic tribes would have needed little persuasion, had they looked at the situation tactically instead of aggressively attacking all invaders whenever possible. The tribesmen Hannibal recruited were trained by his now loyal and battle-hardened Spanish troops. Hannibal promised the Gallic and Spanish infantry under his command the chance to get revenge upon the empire, which had attempted to subdue them so many times. Hannibal recreated the disorganised tribal forces and rebuilt them as a civilised and disciplined army, something that would both surprise and alarm the Romans, which they would soon encounter. He had to be a charismatic guy to have been able to persuade his army to cross over the Alps. So much has been said about how impressive a feat it was, but that doesn't make it any less impressive. Hannibal knew that the Romans were not expecting such a move, but he did the most unexpected thing he could think of. The Alps were to Rome like an impenetrable wall, a fortress, something you couldn't just go through, something which was inhabited by only the most hostile tribes and something which only fools tried to get around or go over. Hannibal was certainly not a fool, but Rome was right, the Alps were inhabited by hostile tribesmen, the same ones that Hannibal had encountered before. Those guys, the Al, Al, those guys in the Alps. Hannibal was harassed in ambush by their forces until he finally attacked their stronghold and forced them to surrender. As they did surrender, many of course would join his army, as other Gallic forces had done. Finally, it seemed Hannibal would be able to move unmolested through the Alps, But then the weather kicked up. Hannibal defeated that too, but at a great cost. He had entered the Alps with an army of around 46,000 men and elephants, and he'd now lost more than half, coming out of the Alps with only 20,000. But Hannibal was nothing if not an optimist. He knew the tribes around northern Italy were dying to get revenge on Rome. All they needed was persuasion. Hannibal was able to resupply his depleted forces by sacking a Gallic settlement called Torini in northern Italy after coming down from the Alps. This act and victory encouraged more local tribes to join him in his quest against Rome. His army must have been quite a sight, considering he still had a large number of his war elephants in tow and that that his ranks consisted mostly of snarling, roughly dressed Gallic tribes and would have appeared somewhat terrifying and unusual moving through their land and led by this mysterious man from Carthage. Hannibal knew that to ensure the loyalty of his new recruits, he would have to give them victory after victory, so he looked for the chance while Scipio the Elder marched towards him at the head of his own army, which was smaller than Hannibal's, but still a considerable force nonetheless. Scipio had heard rumours about Carthaginian movements from fleeing locals, as well as horror stories about giant lumbering beasts that trampled over everything in their path, and they weren't just talking about the Gauls. However, it is unlikely that he fully expected to fight a Carthaginian army. Scipio's job was to move and block the mountain passes that Hannibal was expected to emerge from, and he had also heard that the tribes in the north were growing restless, so some pacifying was perhaps in order. But the tribes, as we know, were not restless. They were marching to battle under Hannibal's banner. And, not only that, there was no time left to block Hannibal because, by now, he had actually come out of the Alps. Hannibal's army was actually spotted by Scipios in November of 218 BC 
and the Battle of Tinsino River began. Hannibal's readiness for battle and Scipio's lack of strategic preparation played out as Hannibal's barbarian forces gained the upper hand. Scipio was wounded as he fled with a large portion of his army still intact to the fortified city of... Okay, well apparently it's called Placentia, but I didn't name it that, so don't get mad at me. Anyway, that night, 2,000 of Scipio's horsemen came over to Hannibal's side. The cavalry had seen that Rome could be beaten, and they were emboldened to see Rome be beaten again. Rome's other consul, Sempronius Longus, had marched up from the south and began plotting his attack. It was a cold morning of December when he marched his army of 14,000 legionnaires and 22,000 auxiliaries against Hannibal. But Longus first had to cross a freezing river, the River Trebia, to reach Hannibal. Adding to the Romans' misery was their lack of breakfast, which, come on, like me, prevented them from being very effective at doing anything and probably made them very grumpy and impatient as well. In contrast, they faced the well-rested, well-fed and warm Carthaginian army on the other side of the river. The Romans pushed forward nonetheless, when suddenly a large force of Carthaginian cavalry led by Mago, Hannibal's brother, appeared at the Romans' left flank. Mago's force began attacking the Roman rear, and wheeled around quickly to hit the Romans on all sides. Cold, hungry and tired, the poor things, the Romans limply defended themselves as best as the situation would allow, but the battle was really over before it began. Sempronius Longus escaped by fighting his way out of the battle with 10,000 other men, but the whole thing had been an embarrassment to both Rome and its armies. Sempronius would not be re-elected as consul. The outcome hadn't been decisive, or at least not decisive enough for Hannibal, but it had been important. Hannibal had proved again that Rome could be beaten, that it wasn't invincible, so again more tribal forces joined his armies as a result. Rome's morale was not badly shaken though, they were confident that Hannibal would still be halted before he did any real damage. The two newly elected consuls for the year 217 BC Servilius Geminius and Caius Flaminius knew that Hannibal had two options. He could A, move down south along the coast to Picenum, or he could B, march west across the passes in the Apennine Mountains into Etruria. Hannibal moved so fast and so discreetly though that Flaminius missed him when he went through the passes into Etruria. Hannibal then began pillaging and looting the countryside and then forced the Romans to chase him. While the consuls scrambled to make any headway, Hannibal searched for the right place to fight. He found it at Lake Trasimene. On the 21st of June, 217 BC, Hannibal had the perfect position from which he could ambush the Romans. Lake Trasimene was an obvious barrier to potential armies' left side, while hills were a barrier to the right, so only a small path on a strip of land was available for marching on. Hannibal positioned his army down the entire stretch of road. They hid behind hills on the right side out of view of the Romans, while portions of the army waited at both ends to close the trap. Flaminius walked straight into this trap, although, in my opinion, if he walked into this landscape without expecting Hannibal to do something sneaky, he probably deserved to lose. Except Flaminius didn't just lose, his entire army was wiped out and he himself was killed. Polybius claims that Flaminius died a coward, Livy claims he died honourably, but whatever the circumstances, it in no way softened the blow to Rome. Rome's allies were moving uncomfortably in their seats. They were pledged to assist Rome, mainly because Rome was so militarily supreme, but 
Its army had been left looking, not at the military powerhouse of the Mediterranean, but like reckless amateurs. Hannibal played up his sense of purpose, of course, releasing captured Italians and Roman allies, but retaining captured Romans. If Hannibal wanted to be seen as Italy's liberator, his future success depended on Rome's allies abandoning Rome. Now, the panic started to set in in Rome. There was no longer an army standing between Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Between Hannibal and Rome itself, Gimenius's force had been destroyed by Hannibal days after the battle, with Gimenius only barely escaping with his life. Under these desperate circumstances, in early autumn 217, Rome appointed a dictator. Quintus Fabius Maximus. Fabius was given command of Rome's forces and was expected to win the war for Hannibal. But Fabius wasn't intending to fight like a Roman. He was barely intending to fight at all. In a dramatic shift in strategy, Fabius would not give battle to Hannibal, no matter how much he attempted to draw the Romans in. Many Romans protested, but the results were clear. Hannibal didn't defeat a Roman army for almost an entire year, Of course, that's because he wasn't faced with one for that time, though. Fabius was clearly ahead of his time in terms of strategy. He was making the most of the circumstances of the time, i.e. the fact that he was in home territory, and Hannibal's existence depended on his ability to gain victories. So if he couldn't fight Rome, he couldn't beat Rome. But Romans wanted to fight, they were born to fight, and it was their destiny to fight, so Fabius was constantly fighting against these qualities. Fabius tried in vain to appeal to the Romans' patience and sensibility, but the cries for concrete action grew louder. Some feared that Rome's allies would abandon her if she did not take steps to actively protect them. Fabius's estates were left untouched by the savvy Hannibal, who understood the importance of politics in war. As Fabius's unpopularity grew, calls for his resignation also grew. These grew louder when in late 217 BC, Hannibal's surrounded army escaped destruction by tricking the Romans commanded by Fabius. With only a few exits from the plains where they were located, Hannibal sent a distraction by lighting torches, tying them to the oxen he captured and sending them towards an exit. Rushing to stop what he believed was a Carthaginian army's escape, Fabius left the other exits wide open and Hannibal, of course, was able to slip away. Fabius groaned. He knew this wouldn't go down well. Of all the calls for his removal, the shouts of Gaius Terentius Varro were by far the loudest. 
Varro was elected consul in the year 216 BC, when Fabius's period as dictator had ended, and Rome returned to its normal two-consul rule. Varro's counterpart, Lucius Aemilius Paulus, was a cautious, experienced military man in comparison to Varro's hasty and reckless strategy. The historical record has not been particularly kind to Varro, and we will soon see why. But before we look at Varro's reputation, I want to look at the Roman army itself. We have already touched on how Hannibal fought, depending on his Numidian cavalry and Spanish and Gallic mercenaries, while using his African heavy infantry, should the situation require it, and sending in the jumbos, if he had any elephants left. Roman armies were an altogether different story, though. Let's see how. While Hannibal depended on any able-bodied men he came across, Rome was firmly established as the dominant military power, and at least the western Mediterranean, if not the eastern Mediterranean too. It could rely on a large Italian population on the peninsula itself, while also employing some barbarian auxiliary forces to fight as cavalry. Rome's focus was its infantry, its legions. The regular Roman battle line was composed of three separate infantry units. In the first line was the younger, fitter but less experienced troops. Behind them were the older but more experienced troops. And in the third and final line were the hardy spearmen, recognised for their long weapons, reminiscent of Alexander's phalanx armies. If you have played Rome Total War, you will also know the names of these troops. The younger troops of the front, the Hastati, the experienced second-line troops, Principes, and the rear guard essentially the last gasp of that Roman legion, who were sent in, in an emergency really, were the Triarii. However, the way in which these lines were deployed is another reason why Rome's military machine was so successful. The first two lines, the Histati and Principes, were deployed in a checkerboard formation known as the Maniple Formation. This meant that in theory, the Romans' first two lines would never be surrounded, since they could be moved in to plug the gap between the lines, or indeed move back at a moment's notice if they had to. The third line of Triarii was designed to cover the flanks, primarily against cavalry, but they could also fight infantry individually or support the principes from behind. In short, it was a well-rehearsed, well-oiled machine that had been tested repeatedly, time and time again, with great success. And it would prove its success later in the centuries, when the Romans clashed with the Greek and Macedonian phalanxes. You also have to remember that the Romans' discipline was their major strength. They would have appeared like cam and focused robots to the snarling painted tribes that they fought. The Roman soldier always moved forward, replacing any felled troops like a conveyor belt until you were exhausted from fighting them and then you could be destroyed. Roman infantry was the most terrifying sight to behold because it seemed like nothing could phase them, nothing could break their organisation and nothing could halt their synchronisation. Nothing could make them appear vulnerable or even human, but Roman cavalry was an altogether different story. Just like Carthage's grasp of infantry, Rome's grasp of cavalry was not the very best in the Mediterranean. Rome viewed cavalry, much like any other auxiliary units such as archers or slingers or javelin men, etc., as secondary to hard-fought infantry battles where close-quarters combat decided the fates of men. Cavalry was seen as a necessary evil, of course, for the Romans, but it wasn't something they ever really excelled at. Just like the construction of a navy, 
The Romans didn't want to do it, necessarily, but they saw its importance. As a result, they were amateur cavalrymen at best. However, because of this, they employed others to do their horsework for them. Gallic, Italian hill tribes and other auxiliaries were all brought into the Roman army. They played a crucial, if unappreciated, role in Roman warfare. Whenever the Romans did decide to mount a horse and form their own cavalry units, though, they appeared more like soldiers trying to sit and fight on horses than the kind of expert cavalry under Hannibal's control. Hannibal could see that Roman weakness lay in its lack of effective cavalry, while Carthage's strength lay in its use of its Klein Kingdom's forces. Klein Kingdoms such as Numidia. Numidia provided the best cavalry in the Mediterranean bar none. They were fast, agile and an intimidating sight on the battlefield. They had been raised to fight on horseback. It was in their tradition as nomads and raiders across the North African plains. Their experience and expertise in this field meant that the Numidians could guide their horses with their knees, freeing both their hands for fighting. But when it came to fighting, the Numidians didn't charge recklessly into combat like so many barbarian cavalry under the Roman command. They used steel javelins as their primary weapon. By their side, many javelins were stored so that while riding, they could throw javelin after javelin at the enemy while riding away from danger. They were basically missile cavalry, and if you've faced them in Rome Total War, you'll know how annoying they are. Zing. But they were the best missile cavalry in Europe. They were practically unbeatable on the open battlefield, and historically the Romans would actually hire them as their own auxiliaries before they discovered how to defeat them. With the details of the armies covered, let's get back to Varro and what his plans were, as he surveyed the situation Rome was in in 216 BC. Livy was clearly not a fan of Varro, let's get that out of the way first. He viewed him as a superstitious madman who was reckless, passionate and arrogant. Varro would earn this reputation, it was not simply something he was labelled as for no reason. As he prepared to break Fabius' strategy of not giving Hannibal battle, his colleague and fellow consul Paulus urged caution. Hannibal had proven his genius before, after all, so would it be unwise to underestimate him yet again, surely, and put Rome in an even greater danger in the process. But Varro was not listening to Paulus, he was dreaming of a famous victory, one that would see his name go down in history. While Paulus offered an alternative view, Varro began building up his forces, eventually forming an army by gathering up men from virtually every Italian city, town and settlement. Polybius, writing roughly 50 years after the event, a fact which may have meant that many in the area would have remembered the actual calling up of the men in the first place, describes what happened in his text, The Histories of Polybius, how Rome assembled this new army. The Senate determined to bring eight legions into the field, which had never been done at Rome before, each legion consisting of 5,000 men besides allies. Most of their wars are decided by one consul and two legions, with their quota of allies, and they rarely employ all four at one time and on one service, but on this occasion, so great was the alarm and the terror of what would happen, they resolved to bring not only four, but eight legions into the field. This was the largest army ever created by Rome on the Italian peninsula, and certainly it was the largest that they had ever created on such short notice, so Varro was certain that, finally, Hannibal would be crushed. 
Hannibal would have been eager to see the Fabian tactics come to an end. Hannibal's eventual victory depended on constant military victories. Sure, it didn't look good for Rome's allies that Rome wasn't fighting the Carthaginians, but Hannibal knew that he couldn't stick around forever. His brothers were campaigning successfully in Spain against the uncles of the future Scipio Africanus, but that didn't matter unless Hannibal could defeat Rome in their home turf. At the end of July 216 BC, Varro was marching his army towards Hannibal. They would meet near the town of Cannae, a small settlement 150 miles southeast of Rome. Varro's army was around 80,000 strong in infantry alone, supported by 6,000 cavalry. Hannibal's in comparison can't have been more than 50,000 including cavalry. So while Varro licked his lips at the numerical superiority which he had, and the win which he believed was coming, Hannibal was developing plans for Rome's greatest defeat. While on his way to Cannae, Varro beat back a small Carthaginian skirmishing party, and this small victory combined with his numerical superiority have led historians to conclude that he was confident to the point of suicidal by the time the Romans set up camp along the river Ophidus, which ran alongside Cannae itself. On one side of the river, Hannibal had established his main camp, while the Romans camped upstream from him with their main force as well, confident that they could contain whatever he threw at them. Fearful that Hannibal may try to escape and deny him the glory that was his for a victory, Varro ensured that a smaller Roman camp was located on the other side of the river, just in case the Carthaginians and their allies tried to flee. On one fateful morning, it was reported to Varro that the Carthaginians had in fact attacked this smaller camp, an act which forced Varro to move his entire army across the river. The whole exercise, of course, was designed to force a battle between Rome and Carthage. Again, Hannibal was forcing the Romans to react to his move, which they did by moving their entire army across the river. For the moment, though, that was all they would do. Varro was likely screaming at Paulus to attack, but it made no difference. You see, the army was a combined consular army, meaning that the overall command of the army changed every day from Varro to Paulus. On the day Hannibal tried to draw the Romans into battle, it happened to be Paulus's day to command. Paulus was calm and experienced. He knew that attacking right away would play into Hannibal's hands, even if he didn't know what exactly was in Hannibal's hands. So Paulus improvised. He moved the large camp's supplies across the river so that the Romans could stay here indefinitely. It was clear to Paulus and Varro that Hannibal was not going away. He was ready to fight and would not be going back to his camp. For that day, Paulus refused to give battle, attempting to assess what Hannibal's strategy was. He even managed to convince Varro not to attack the next day. The day after that, Paulus was in control again, and he didn't attack again either. But the next day, on the 2nd of August, Varro could stand it no longer. He moved his army out in battle formation and prepared to attack Hannibal's army. Paulus protested, but his cries for Varro to wait fell on deaf ears. Varro said, move, and Paulus, because of the way the consul system worked, had to obey, as did the rest of the Roman army. Hannibal had not been simply sitting and waiting during this time of interconsular tension. He too had come prepared for the Romans not biting at his trap, meaning supplies had been brought up from the Carthaginian camp, ensuring that his army wouldn't starve. 
Hannibal was also fooling both Paulus and Vara with his formation. You see, he knew that the Romans were obsessed with using the infantry to deliver that knockout punch, so he made his infantry line up according to the Roman dream. He placed his weakest infantry on the wings, with his strongest in the centre, so that the Romans would dream of a double envelopment of his army when battle came, and that meant that the Romans would, in turn, pack their own infantry closer together. The Romans did this, and played exactly into Hannibal's hands, so that they could focus their attack on the tougher centre, and when the weaker wings then inevitably gave out, the Romans, who had been fighting those wings, would turn to attack the Carthaginian centre, joining the other troops. Varro also recognised that his army was simply too large to use the regular maniple formation, so he packed it closer together for that reason too. Varro's strategy was that the Roman and allied cavalry would hold back their Carthaginian counterparts, while the Roman infantry destroyed Carthage's infantry. But Hannibal had them all fooled. For starters, although these Spanish and Gallic infantry looked the same as the barbarians Rome had defeated time and time again, they were not at all the same. Years of battle under Hannibal had made them disciplined, confident and experienced, and they fought as one rather than as the confusing mass of bodies that the Romans expected. Hannibal was lulling the Romans into a false sense of security. Although none of his troops could be classified as weak, he knew that the stronger and more experienced troops should stay on the wings, while the less experienced, perhaps less reliable troops would be in the centre, commanded directly by him. Additionally, his cavalry, which Varro expected to simply hold at bay, were the most important part of his army. Hannibal relied on every element of his army to fight effectively, as we shall soon see, but he relied on his cavalry the most of all. So picture the formation then. The Romans are packed into three tight, straight lines. On their left flank is Varro commanding the allied light cavalry, and on their right flank is Paulus commanding the heavier Roman cavalry. Hannibal's army looks like this. There's 20,000 Celtic and 4,000 Spanish infantry in the centre, with the highly experienced Libyan infantry commanding the flanks, with about 5,000 on each. In terms of cavalry, Hannibal's flank, facing Paulus, contained 6,000 Spanish and Gallic cavalry, while his flank facing Varro contained 4,000 Numidian cavalry. So they were reasonably evenly matched, at least in terms of numbers. The Romans shouted their war cry and clashed their shields and swords together. And if you've played Rome Total War, I'm just kidding. So their missile infantry, the velites or javelin men and archers, all of course being auxiliaries, moved forward to attack. They were met by the Balearic slingers used by Carthage. The slingers from the Balearic Isles were the most effective and feared troops of their kind in Europe. They carried three slings for different ranges, and they could fire off a huge number of lead shot in succession. Their volleys were of a far higher volume than their Roman counterparts, and some of the slingers even became more daring and tried to run forward and attack the Roman cavalry and infantry detachments. Sufficiently provoked by these darn slingers, the Roman right flank led by Paulus then charged, but they were hit by javelins thrown by the Spanish and Gallic horsemen. Paulus's horses, which were equipped with lances, were useless as they chased the cavalry, only to be hit by more javelins and slingers' bullets when they returned. Paulus would be struck in the head by a slinger's bullet, and he would bleed out on the battlefield. Hannibal's left flank then wheeled around the back of the Romans and attacked the Roman left flank. 
which was engaging with the Carthaginian right flank. The Numidians on the right threw javelin after javelin while the slingers fired shot after shot, while Hannibal's left flank mounted charge after charge. Varro's cavalry was of course then in disarray. They were all annihilated and he fled the battlefield. The Roman infantry was not paying much attention to the flanks, engrossed as they were with the bloody business of the day. As Hannibal's flanks had destroyed the enemy cavalry and auxiliaries, and as his cavalry had won the day, interesting developments were occurring in the centre. The Carthaginian line of battle, which had started out representing a semicircle, with the bend of the circle at the front of the enemy, was now bending back so that it resembled a straight line. The Romans continued to push in their tightly packed formations, and Hannibal ensured the centre moved calmly backwards. With great discipline, the Romans were somehow fooled into not realising that they were playing into Hannibal's hands. All they realised was that they were gaining ground and that the enemy appeared to be moving back, so they kept pushing forward. The Carthaginian line then resembled a semicircle, with the centre moving away from the Romans, while the sides of the semicircle became more and more pronounced. So if you can picture the Romans now in the middle of the semicircle, then you can see their dilemma. As they began to realise what was happening, the Romans also accepted that they could do very little. They were already tightly packed when the battle started, but as the experienced Libyan troops pushed in on their flanks, it got to the stage where they could barely lift their swords. The Carthaginian left and right cavalry flanks now returned after chasing their Roman counterparts away, and then they closed the lid on what became a square box with the entire Roman army trapped inside. The Spanish cavalry cut into the backs and the legs of the Romans, while the Numidians fired javelins into the mass of men, while the Gallic horsemen dismounted and entered the battle with barely contained joy, swinging and screaming wildly. Servilius Geminius, whose consulship in 217 BC had seen him fail to stop Hannibal, died in the fighting, but not before charging with a small detachment directly at Hannibal's centre itself. It is said that Hannibal saw him die. Anyone who has ever played Rome Total War, seriously this time, knows that infantry units hate fighting on two fronts, let alone three. It's pretty much common sense. But I myself have often tried to replicate Hannibal's moves in Rome Total War, but the computer never seems to be stupid enough to allow me to surround it on all four sides. Where am I going with this? Well yes, my point is you only have to see how quickly the infantry routes when it's surrounded on all sides in a computer simulation, when it's attacked in the front and the rear and the sides, to imagine the chaos on the battlefield of Cannae. 50,000 Romans died, like straight up died, and less than 3,000 escaped. These were huge numbers for the ancient world. The rest were captured and sold or released if they were not Roman. This was Hannibal's finest hour. In two years, he had destroyed Rome's finest armies, Rome was now hysterical, but it would not give up. Hannibal couldn't understand why Rome's allies simply didn't abandon her to her fate and announce their own independence. What Hannibal failed to grasp was that by 218 BC, it was far too late to attempt to remove Rome from Italy. Italy's cities were too tightly fastened to Rome to ever be removed, and if Rome went down, they would go down with her. The Roman loss at Cannae had been horrendous, but it proved to Rome's allies that Rome would not neglect them, so Rome's allies refused to abandon her. That's not to say that no Italian cities changed sides, 
Some like Capua, for example, famously did, but Hannibal never got the flood of converts that he was rightly expecting, and Rome refused to give up. There was almost no peace movement in Rome, despite the lack of an army in the Italian mainland. Hannibal flipped some cities, but Rome flipped them back with its smaller local armies, and this went on and on for the next five years. Hannibal won more battles on a smaller scale, but nothing really changed. Spain, as well, was slowly being lost to Rome, thanks to the emerging genius of the general of Scipio the Younger. In 207 BC, Hannibal's brother Hasdrubal was defeated in the Battle of Metaurus. Upon learning of this defeat, Hannibal would have known that there was going to be no hope of reinforcements, and also that it was the beginning of the end. Then Scipio, upon removing and defeating the Carthaginians in Spain in 206 BC, he began to advocate an invasion of Africa itself. This was eventually approved after much campaigning, and Carthage was put under direct threat in 203 BC. In the years before this, the Numidian king Syphax was defeated and taken prisoner by the Romans, and he was replaced by the pro-Roman Massinissa, who took over the majority of his kingdom and provided the Romans with the Numidian cavalry that Hannibal had depended on for so long. Everywhere he looked, Hannibal was seeing disaster. Once Africa was invaded and Carthage threatened, the Carthaginian Senate demanded that Hannibal return home. I can only imagine how hard this must have been for Hannibal. He had defeated Rome again and again, like common sense would have dictated that he would win the war, but no one would join him, no one would abandon Rome, and Rome itself would not admit defeat. Again, and this is my final reference to this immortal game, I swear, if you have ever played Rome Total War and defeated the computer time and time again, only to see them refuse to make peace with you, despite the hopelessness of their situation, then you can understand what Hannibal was going through. He obeyed the Senate's demands, though, and returned to aid Carthage in its defence, but this was not the same Hannibal who had once terrorised Rome. He was 45 years old by this point, Tired of war, tired of people letting him down, and he knew by now that Rome couldn't be defeated. Because of this, he was depressed and a broken shell of a man. The charisma had been drained from his body and he had had enough. When Hannibal lost to Scipio at the Battle of Zama in 202 BC, he persuaded Carthage to make peace. The war which Hannibal should have, by all reasonable accounts, won, was now over. Carthage became a client state of Rome and Hannibal went into exile, likely still trying to figure out where it had all gone wrong. Carthage would never threaten Rome again. So Rome emerged from the Second Punic War, somehow still in one piece. A lesser state would have called it quits the day after Cannae, but not Rome. Rome's defeat of Carthage meant that it faced no more direct threats in the West, and it began a process of unparalleled expansion. The East, though, was another story. A sideshow of the war was the First Macedonian War, in which Philip V of Macedon declared war upon Rome in 215 BC in support of his new ally Hannibal, but this war ended in 205 BC as the war began to turn against Hannibal. Rome never forgave Macedon for its attack on Rome during its darkest hour, and this resentment led to a renewal of hostilities in the Second Macedonian War in 200 BC. Through this, Rome was taking its first steps towards the east, and in subsequent years, it would become the dominant power not just in the western Mediterranean, but in the eastern Mediterranean, and, eventually, 
the whole of Europe. So that's the end of the podcast. I hope we've enjoyed this apparently random foray into the ancient world, and I'd like to thank you for indulging me as I covered a war covered, in turn, by so many others. We are, in fact, not sponsored by Rome Total War, but I may just play a game of it now and attempt to have my revenge on that pesky Scipio family in the name of Carthage's favourite son. So thanks for listening, history friends. In the next episode, we will return to a more familiar era. But if you'd like to support, don't forget Be Fit. And don't forget, When Diplomacy Fails exists because of you. Have a good day. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 